0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com
1: The god Ray wept and the tears from his eyes fell on the ground and turned into a bee. The bee made his honeycomb and busied himself with the flowers of every plant. And so wax was made, and also honey, out of the tears of Ray.
2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And that was a beautiful little reading, Robert. What was that? That uh,
1: quote comes to us from a 1975 translation of a 300 BCE bit of writing. It's, it's essentially cursive hieroglyphs, which is called a hieratic. hieratic writing. Yeah. And uh, more specifically, this wonderful uh, uh, little excerpt comes from a book titled The Tears of Ray, Beekeeping in Ancient Egypt by Gene Kritsky. And at the end of this episode, we're going to chat with uh, the author uh, just a little bit about some of the material we're discussing here and about the book,
2: The Tears of Ray. This was a very interesting book. Robert and I both read it for this episode, and it essentially it covers the relationship between the ancient Egyptians and the honeybee. Yeah. The complex economic, religious, and scientific relationship, you might say, uh, going back and forth between them. But we, we should start, I guess, with Ray, because that's the focus of this little poem segment you read at the beginning. Yeah. Now, who is Ray? Ray. You may be more familiar with the name Ra, R a. Uh, the the sun god, the creator god of the ancient Egyptians, uh, is often depicted as sort of a, a, like a bird's head, the head of a falcon, but also a sun disk that travels across the sky. And then, it, of course, dusk, it gets eaten and then goes into the underworld. Well, actually, I think those are two different myths, right? It goes into the underworld and then comes back out. But there's another version where Ray gets eaten and then gets rebirthed. Yeah, and there's a there's a lot of material about the like he he travels across the sky
1: in a solar barge, and then there's a different barge that travels through the underworld at night, mm-hmm. and and
2: sometimes there are additional uh, gods on those barges. It's uh it's, it's very complex. One of the things I definitely did find out from this book is that these days, if you want to be, uh, in line with the academic Egyptology community, you say Ray, not Ray. Ra. Yeah. Uh, now I, I got Ra from the movie Stargate, where <laughs> Ra is the bad guy who is essentially an alien version of an Egyptian god. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but that, that's not it anymore. It's yeah, Ray.
1: Yeah. Plus most, uh, most Egyptologists dismiss, uh, uh, Stargate as a, a reputable source of, oh, really? uh, of data these days yeah <laughs> i don't know why but um but yeah this this episode i've uh, hopefully what we're going to do here is, uh, is we will, uh, we'll allow you to leave the, the podcast with maybe a little more understanding and respect for the kingdom of the bees and a little more respect and understanding, uh, for the, the kingdom of ancient Egypt. Yeah. Because, uh, there's a, there's so much com- complexity in both and, uh, and it, it's fascinating to sort of look here at this, this kingdom within a kingdom and how they uh, uh how they were related to each other.
2: Oh, the bee kingdom within the egyptian
1: yeah, kingdom. Yeah, cuz cuz I really love is, that. Yeah, we have a monarch, uh uh-huh. a monarchy uh, uh within the uh the, the, the honey bee uh hive a and lot of a, workers. Yeah, a lot of workers toiling away involved in this industry mm-hmm. and then uh we have this. Uh, we have ancient Egypt. We have uh, an, another monarchy with a very complex uh, system of order, uh, a lot of industry going on, a lot of workers
2: uh, toiling to make it all possible, and also sort of a two-way cyberbiotic symbiotic relationship. Yeah, yeah, indeed. But I guess we should start with the bee first, because obviously the bee predates ancient Egypt as a civilization, probably not as a landmass. So, Robert, wh- where do bees come from? Well, I'm glad you asked, Joe.
1: Uh, <laughs> let me tell you about the bees. Uh, you'd have to travel back about 100 million, maybe 130 million years, depending on who you're talking to, uh, all the way back to the Cretaceous period. Okay, and you'd find
2: so dinosaurs roamed the earth.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're, we're going way back here, and you'd find a world rather different than the one we're in, we encounter today, uh, devoid of flowering plants and occupied mostly by
2: conifers, uh, which uh, depend uh, on the wind to spread their seeds. Wow. Yes. Can you imagine that? I mean, a world where, where reproduction depends entirely on the whims of the weather. Yeah. like Can you imagine if animals, uh, because trees can't walk around and find each other to mate, they're stuck in place, trees and bushes, you know, whatever you want. Uh, plants are not very mobile, mm-hmm. so they, they essentially have to spray their reproductive material into the air, just hoping it gets somewhere worthwhile by chance.
1: Yeah, indeed, this is just an earlier state in the, just the, the the evolution of seed transfer. So there are no flowers, and there's certainly no pollination. Now, there were there were no bees at this point, but there were wasps and these wasps were also kind of different from the wasps that we encounter today. Uh, They they were hymenoptera, the the order that wasps and bees are in. Yeah, indeed. They were now they were but they were carnivorous. They preyed on spiders and other insects and many of which in turn fed on vegetation. Uh, So. Along, so so we have a uh, traffic going on here, all right? Seeds are going into the air. The wasps are eating the insects that live on the plants. But plant ev- evolution eventually begins to make the most out of this constant insect traffic, using it like the wind to carry genetic material from plant to plant. And this results in the rise of angiosperms. These are plants that depend on insects to spread genetic material in pollen from male plant parts
2: called anthers to female parts, Called stigmas. This is one of those moments I often want to say, like, "Oh, how smart that is!" But I know it's yeah. It's like as if somebody planned it. Now, of course, it wasn't. These are just uh, the the wonderful ingenuities of evolution acting upon the environment. But yeah, uh, it, it's fascinating how things like this come about. So you have to imagine a system where these plants are pollinating by wind, but they have this this sperm, the pollination material. I guess you would say pollen, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and somehow. Insects start getting this stuff on their bodies. Right. Essentially, a new wind emerges, and that wind is the movement of these insects. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, once that works out for long enough, plants sort of evolve traits to specialize in that mode of transmission. It's no longer an accident. It's how they work now.
1: And indeed, you see the uh, the emergence of uh, delicious nectar to sweeten the deal yeah. for the pollen-carrying insects, saying, Hey, come here, get all nice and covered in polleny. And I'm, I'm totally anthropomorphizing the entire process here. My apologies. But, uh, but yeah, essentially bribing the insects with the, with uh, the delicious nectar to get them to carry the pollen, giving them a specific reason to
2: traffic the parts of the plant where pollen is produced. So I can imagine if you're some wasp 135, 130 million years ago and you've been hunting insects, that's, that's tough work. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's really tough. Now, if you could just start getting all of your meals from a, passive plant that will sit there and let you just lap up delicious, uh, sweet things from its open maw. That, I mean, w- what a nice deal.
1: Yeah, yeah. Suddenly there's this, there's this wonderful new way to get the food you need. Now, granted, there's still, um, they're still sort of, uh, tied to their predatory past. And indeed today, mm. um, you'll, you have, you, you can look at most common wasps and they're depending upon, upon nectar as their primary food, but they still have to turn to their carnivorous ways, uh, when it comes to rearing their young, implanting their young in the belly of another, uh, creature. Oh, the parasitoid wasps. Oh, yeah, 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 which is just a, yeah, a wonderful area, uh, that we have explored in po- past podcasts and I'm sure will return in the future. Christian and I talk- talked about it in our X-Files episode. Oh yes, of course. Yeah, that uh, parasitoid wasps are not only is it just an endlessly fascinating area, but we just get new studies each year with either a new uh, type of parasitoid wasp or some new details about a species we were already familiar with.
2: Yeah, so the wasps evolved to to live off of what is provided by the plants and in an interesting way, I think we could think about this as the plants domesticating livestock. Yeah. The plants have domesticated the livestock of insects in order to do their bidding, and of course the wasps are one thing, but it's the bees
1: where we really see this take off. Because of course bees evolve from wasps; they're all related. Uh, but the the bees are actually they're gathering the nectar, they're bringing it back for their young. They're 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 uh, they're creating honey. They're creating these uh, these these waxy nests. They are completely beholden. Uh, to the nectar, uh, they're no longer going out and uh, and, and specifically uh, killing other creatures to rear their young.
2: OK, so when we're talking about honeybees, true honeybees, this is the genus Apis, right? Yes. And that's why we also
1: refer to it as is uh, apiculture.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: It's, beekeeping is beekeeping. apiculture,
2: mm-hmm. not the keeping of apes. Right. <laughs> yeah. A fun fact to, to remember, by the way, next time you're adding a dab of honey to your Earl Gray tea mm-hmm. is that honey is bee barf, Right. This is how honey is produced. It's produced by, uh, bees grabbing some sweet nectar, which is pretty much sugar water. Right. From plants, and then going through a complex process of regurgitation and evaporation.
1: Yeah, so they're kind of, uh, yeah, distilling it, refining it, uh, through their, their just regurgitation of the material. You know, and I should, I should also mention that, uh, uh when it comes to to bees we have bumblebees we have stingless bees and we even have a few other non bee species that produce honey in small amounts but for the most part we're yeah you know, we're dealing with those uh those apis honeybees which are the superstars the the generators of like a true bounty an excess of honey uh, in the amount
2: that it makes
1: sense for humans to raise them and
2: pillage their stores. Now, when I was a kid, I used to wonder, huh, we eat honey, but I know bees make honey. I did not know that they barfed honey up for us. Uh-huh. I didn't know that they made honey, but I didn't know what they did with it. I was like, why do they make it? Is it? just What is it? What's it for? Do the bees themselves eat the honey?
1: Yeah, they store it as a primary food source. They also eat what is called bee bread. Uh, which is uh, a very cute name. Yeah. Yeah. It's essentially like a pollen cake, you know. Uh, but, yeah, the, the honey is a food source for the, the, the bee people, if you will. Um, and they store it away
2: in those uh, waxy cells uh, uh, in the honeycomb. But you mentioned wax. Of course, wax is another important byproduct of bee culture. It's it's their second great uh, technology.
1: Yes, indeed. And uh, and the wax that the workers actually secrete from specialized glands on the underside of their abdomens. Wait, what? They secrete it? Yeah.
2: Essentially, you know, you can think of them as like wax nipples, I guess. So um, the, bee, the bees have wax nipples and mm-hmm. they, they put out the wax What is this little flaky lipids for us.
1: Yeah. And they, they get the raw materials for this uh, metabolized product through the consumption of that honey and that bee bread, which we already mentioned. And uh, the bee bread. Uh, it, I should also have uh, have pointed out that it's uh, essentially uh, collected fermented pollen. So yeah, um, so these serve as the so it it, it kind of goes around in a circle, right? The the nectar, the honey, the wax. This whole uh, this whole little uh, little city uh, for the insects built uh, from the bounty of the flowers.
2: Yeah. Now, long before humans started formalized apiculture, before they started making beehives to keep bees in to mm-hmm. sort of have an agriculture of insects, they hunted honey, right? There was right. wild honey hunting, the same way you would hunt game in the forest or on the savanna. You could hunt honey just as it occurred in a beehive that might be hanging from a tree. And there are actually ancient works of cave art that depict this. Yeah, there are still
1: also honey hunting traditions that survive to this day, and it's essentially the same thing a bear does, right? If a bear breaks into a honey hive or a honey badger, goes after some some bees as well. Yeah. you just You find out where the hive is, you locate it, and then you use the best skills at your disposal to break in there and get as much dripping honeycomb as possible and run off with
2: it. Now, Kritzky's book has an illustration or not an illustration. It does have an illustration, but also a photo of this great cave painting from Spain that mm-hmm. seems to depict honey hunting from how how old is this thing? Yeah, this dates back uh,
1: 7000 to 8000 years. So that gives us a rough estimate uh, of not, not, not where it began but at least how far it, it probably goes
2: yeah and so what what's depicted in the painting is this great setup it looks like a scene from a movie mm-hmm. where you've got somebody hanging from a rope apparently off a cliff <laughs> being lowered down to an area where there's a tree with a bees nest hanging off of it and reaching in to grab the honey and you can see bees swarming around the person I, I mean, that's a lot of trust in whoever's holding the rope, right? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and you
1: know, you're just getting just the bejesus stung out of you the whole time, but uh-huh. it's just such. I mean, especially in a, if oh, the a, energy density, yeah, the energy density of that, of that, that score. I mean, this stuff is just, it's pure gold, uh, nutritionally speaking. So you're going to occasionally do what it takes, uh, to get it and bring it back. Uh, not to mention the
2: value you're going to have bringing that stuff back to your community. But I guess we should now look at when, when true apiculture started. When did we start having, uh, beehives where, where we sort of set up an enclosure and said, bees, go live in there here's where you should make your homes and they obeyed all right so as best we
1: can tell beekeeping probably emerged by accident probably in the fertile crescent Um, and probably what you had happen was you you have human industries is is creating all these different pots and containers Mm -hmm. uh, for your various uh, agricultural efforts and uh, one might leave a pot hanging around somewhere unused Suddenly some bees come in, they they take up a residence in the pot. And this could theoretically serve as as like the first accidental Beehive uh, that's actually kept by beekeepers, and they realize, oh, bees will 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 actually build their nest in this uh, this spot. If I leave it out for them, there's a chance I'll have my own captive honey hive.
2: Yeah, I mean, talk about turning a loss into a win. So imagine, you know, you've got this jar that you were planning on keeping full of ergot infested rye, uh, and you go back to get it, and suddenly it's full of bees, and you're like, oh man my plans are spoiled i'm going to get stung cleaning this thing out but then you realize you have access to all this sweet sweet honey yeah and and not only the honey but the wax the wax is key
1: because uh there is evidence of lost wax castings uh dating back to 3500 bce now a lost wax casting for anyone not familiar this has to do with uh, uh with a, a cast uh, used to make uh, uh, like a metal objects mm-hmm. in which it's uh, you, you, you build like the clay or what have you around a wax model of the thing you're going to
2: build and then you melt the wax out of there and voila you have this mold mm-hmm. which you can use to make metal objects right. so it's a way of turning easily moldable wax into metal yes which is pretty awesome yeah so the only thing here is that you
1: don't have to be a beekeeper to get that wax. That wax could have been obtained through honey hunting. We just don't know. Um, but when, when it comes to actually finding the, uh, the earliest evidence of bee raising, of beekeeping, then you really have to go to the Egyptians, to the ancient Egyptians. Uh, and this would put us around 3000 BCE.
2: That's 5000 years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing just to consider, completely separate from the topic of beekeeping, how enormously long ancient Egypt went on. Yeah, we're talking roughly, yeah, five thousand years
1: of of human history uh, wound up in the ancient Egyptians. Uh, a A civilization that, after it, you know, even when it was going, it was it was an ancient civilization. Um, and of course, it's gonna it's impossible for us to summarize you know, thousands of years of ancient history, the ebb and flow of political and social change here. Uh, you know, in the in the same way that Egyptian history is tied closely to the Nile, so too is the region's history a long, twisting, swelling, shrinking movement across the landscape of human history. But to summarize, we're talking the civilization of ancient North Africa generally attributed to lasting from roughly thirty-one
2: hundred BCE to three hundred and twenty-two. Uh, So that's talking about the transition out of the Stone Age, out of the Neolithic period, the beginning of large scale civilization in ancient Egypt until the time I think they mark the end of it with the time the last hieroglyphic carvings were made in Egypt. Yes. And And it's the one in 300 something CE.
1: Correct. Now, you can also some historians um, and uh, and authors, including uh, Gene Kritsky, also go ahead and include that Neolithic period. And that would put the beginning around uh, 5500 BC. So uh, that's where you would get a total time period of around uh, 5,163 years of culture.
2: Yeah. So for those of you who think it's been forever since the American Revolution or oh, yeah. something like that, it is w- w- such a tiny blip. Yeah, modern it, history is yeah, it, such a tiny blip. It in It human civilization. really dwarfs the modern age.
1: So, you know, that's essentially uh, the, the time period we're talking about. And during that time, the ancient Egyptians demonstrated their expertise of a number uh, of, of general and highly specialized categories uh-huh. uh, and skills. They were accomplished farmers and engineers. They were artists and linguists. They were soldiers. They were astrologers. They were doctors uh, and, and much more. I mean, everyone knows about the, the pyramids and various uh, architectural mar- marvels uh, that survive to this day. Everyone knows about the rich history of mummification, which we've talked about here on the show before. Uh, but uh, there, uh, other stuff just continues continually fascinates me when I read about it. For instance, uh, to find out that ancient Egyptians performed surgical skin grafts as early as 800 BCE. Um, and uh, indeed, as we're discussing in this uh, episode, that they practice uh, the
2: earliest known examples of apiculture. Okay, well, once Egyptian civilization is underway, once we've got our our dynasties and our, our organized hierarchical civilization and culture, we we should look at the role bees and honey played in that. And one of the first things I think we can observe is that there is a glyph in the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic language. It's one of their symbols that's a honeybee.
1: That's right. Yeah, it's um, it shows up in some of the earliest examples of ancient Egyptian writing. Uh, in fact, we we see it uh, uh, in use uh, by the Old Kingdom. That's uh, 2687 through uh, 2191
2: BCE. And uh, uh, we probably shouldn't try to get too much into talking about the different ages of ancient right. Egypt. But essentially, there's an Old Kingdom that goes on for a long time with many pharaonic dynasties. And mm-hmm. then there's an intermediate period that's sort of like a dark age. And then there is a Middle Kingdom. And then there's another... Break in that. There's another intermediate period, and then there's a new kingdom, and then of course there's the Greco-Roman period, right? And, but but uh, essentially coming, in, coming into the Middle Ages,
1: yeah. But but essentially at this point, uh, just think of this: the the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx are there. They're relatively newly constructed, and there's evidence already that uh, the Egyptians had at that point uh, mastered to some degree uh, beekeeping and were producing honey. Okay. Yeah, uh, according to um, to Kritzky here, there's evidence uh, from around this point that you actually had um, a, a a role uh, in the uh, in, in the governmental structure known as the Sealer of Honey. There's an individual who was the Sealer of Honey, and this at least suggests either very organized honey hunting. Or quite possibly uh, the beginnings of
2: of industrialized um, uh, beekeeping. You know, I love this title that you see throughout ancient Egypt: the sealer. Yeah, the person who seals, uh, and that that imbues an authority. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of our our recent episode
1: on the Inca, and we talked about the importance within a a government, with importance within an empire of of having a way to, of course, record. Uh, you know, amounts. Uh, uh, when it comes to goods, the 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 price of goods, the exchange of goods, and then also being able to to seal it and say this is what is contained within, and uh, and
2: someone is accountable for it. Yeah, it's a very wonderful uh physical metaphor for having the final word on something. Yeah. Uh, but so we we do see in ancient Egypt the evidence of the first organized beekeeping, right?
1: Yeah. The the current earliest known evidence takes us uh. To, uh, around, uh, 2513 uh, BCE. And specifically it takes us to the solar temple Sheza So what we have here Within the, uh, the ruins of this solar temple, that's again, it's, it's devoted to, to Ray, uh, we see decorative colored reliefs that show off scenes of desert wildlife,
2: boating, and beekeeping. Yeah, and it's got these different vignettes that mm-hmm. actually show the stage. I mean, it's not just sort of like a, a cartoon, like, oh, here are some people beekeeping. It, it's sort of, uh, comprehensive. It yeah. shows the different steps you take in order to, uh, do the main jobs of a beekeeper.
1: Yeah, and, uh, th- there, there's a certain amount of interpretation that has to take place in figuring out exactly what they're showing mm-hmm. and exactly what those uh, vignettes are showing. They, um. Especially because some parts of it are missing. Yeah, some parts are missing and or damaged. And, uh, and depending on what's going on there, you know, that. That ends up impacting our understanding of exactly how advanced they were. So, for instance, that uh, uh, there's a, one of the vignettes in particular uh, represents a man either using a smoker to control the bees or he's
2: calling a queen to enter a jug now either one of those options is very interesting and we, we should talk about what that actually means to yeah. to smoke the bees or to call the queen yeah the smoking thing i think most people are familiar with this because if you've seen
1: any footage or just or even in just in your, the course of your life if you've seen beekeeping you've probably seen people using a smoker yeah because the smoke uh calms the bees it, uh, <laughs> that's a nice way it's a nice it. way of putting it yeah it's um it, it's it's a weapon you get to use against the bees so you can pillage their goods. It's like uh, saying
2: tear gas calms the crowd.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it works. And when you try and figure out exactly how this came about, you know, who knows? Somebody was getting stung by bees and they leveled their torch at them and they noticed the smoke helped. Or uh, perhaps one was making a, a burnt offering and they found that the incense, uh, the smoke from the incense calmed the bees. Uh, you know, there
2: are a couple of different yeah. uh, ends there. Mm-hmm. Now, the calling is also a fascinating possibility, whichever one he's doing here. If he's calling, it seems to be that he's got a beehive up to his face, uh-huh. and he's making sounds with his mouth into the beehive to get the bees to do something, which, which is just amazing. Now, how exactly would this work? What would he be doing?
1: Well, it's known as, as piping, and uh, it's, it's a very real thing, and it's also still – practiced uh, in some beekeeping traditions, uh, especially in in Egypt to this day, like even uh, despite all that has fallen away uh, from ancient Egypt and modern Egyptian culture, uh, you still see some of these traditional beekeeping uh, practices that are utilized there. So essentially what's happening here is a beekeeper mimics the queen's audible communication. Uh, So the, the queen is pushing her thorax against the honeycomb and vibrating her wing muscles without moving her wings uh and it creates this um it's a, it's a a a long tone followed by a series of short bursts and i've heard it uh, described as zeep zeep
2: zeep there's also a a cack cack town, yeah right yeah yeah so there there are different tones that the bees make to one another to communicate to signal uh essentially what they need to do in the next stage of a reproductive process like if a if a young queen is within the nest right and uh, specifically here my
1: understanding is that what the 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 bee caller is doing is creating the sound of an emergent virgin queen yes and then that would uh cause the existing monarch or another emergent queen to uh, come forward and fight her <laughs> and try to kill her Yeah. Uh, calling it, her out yeah calling her out so you're you're uh, manipulating the the bees speaking their language in order to draw the queen away so that you can Put her in a bottle, move her to another hive, and use her presence to manipulate the um, uh, your creation of new hives or just moving the existing hive.
2: Yeah. So just the idea of of a human being able to to make bee sounds to talk to the bees is fascinating on its own. Also that they they figured this out in ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. But there are other techniques displayed at uh in inni's solar temple as well, right? Yeah. There's another vignette
1: that. Seems like it shows a man pouring something from a spout. So this might be honey taken from the hive. Uh It might be honey that's just separated from the wax. They might be diluting it. Um, We're diluting the honey. Yeah, diluting the honey with water. Uh, and I, th- I I remember reading in Krinsky's book that, that, that some have commented on this and, and thought, well, maybe they were making mead or something, uh, you know, because you can, of course, take honey and create an alcoholic beverage from it. But there is apparently no real evidence that that's what was actually taking place here, yeah. though they apparently did add honey, perhaps in diluted form, to their alcohol.
2: Yeah. So they sweetened wine or beer with it, but they didn't th- make mead as far as we know. As far as we know. Yeah. Now, looking at these vignettes, I wanted to observe something that struck me as quite strange uh, throughout this book. And so meaning throughout ancient Egypt, there are lots of pictures of bees. I mean, this makes sense because we have this bee glyph, this standard bee illustration. It's part of the hieroglyphic language, uh, you know, the written language system. But there are also all these illustrations of bees that appear in vignettes and carvings throughout ancient Egypt depicting a swarm of bees or a bee next to a jar showing that the jar has honey in it or in these beekeeping scenes. And I noticed very often it looks to me like these bees do not have a correct number of legs. Indeed. Yeah. I, and I feel like I don't want to be pedantic here, but often you see the bees with four legs. Or you see them with three legs. I can understand the three legs because we know insects have six legs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the three legs, maybe you're just seeing one side of the bee. So each leg stands for a pair. But the ones where it shows four legs or maybe five legs, like four forward legs and one back leg sticking out, those are strange to me. Especially since there's like no animal on Earth that has an odd number of legs. But anyway, this four-legged ancient beast sort of it rang a, a bell vaguely in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. I, I was like, "Where do I know that concept from before?" And it was it was it was saying to me, "Go back to Sunday school." So I did. <laughs> I checked it out. I looked in the Bible, and bingo. In the Bible, in in the uh, the Hebrew Bible, in Leviticus 11, 20 to twenty three, uh, we read about four legged insects in a part of the ancient Hebrew dietary restrictions. So, I just want to read this selection of Leviticus from the New American Standard Translation. This is this is referring to which insects are kosher, right? Yeah, which you can and can't eat. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, the translation reads like this. All the winged insects that walk on all fours are detestable to you. Yet these you may eat among the winged insects which walk on all fours, those which have above their feet jointed legs with which to jump on the earth. These of them you may eat, the locust in its kinds, and the devastating locust in its kinds, and the cricket in its kinds, and the grasshopper in its kinds. But all other winged insects which are four-footed are detestable to you. Uh, now obviously i I'm not trying to like hammer these ancient people like, "Oh, mm-hmm. what a bunch of dummies i mean they they weren 't dummies you wouldn't expect either the ancient Egyptian artist who created the solar temple carving or any of these other carvings and and illustrations. Uh, nor would you expect the jewish author who wrote this part of leviticus to be some kind of entomologist studying bees up close and locusts to see how many legs they have right there's a division
1: in egyptian society and the individuals who are who are keeping the bees are probably separate from those that are uh, actually uh, carving the hieroglyphics
2: yeah so i'm certainly not saying that they're stupid they should have mm-hmm. known better but but it just did seem like an interesting coincidence that, that multiple ancient peoples would get this wrong. And uh, also, as I kept reading in the book, I came across more art that depicted bees this way is on this Old Kingdom seal amulet, on a Middle Kingdom scarab carving. And so it just made me wonder, is there a widespread belief in the ancient Near East that insects had four legs?
1: Hmm. Well, you know, after you brought this to my attention, I was looking around a little about it. And certainly there's there's a lot of just pointless... (laughs) uh information out there with people either using this as, as an argument against uh religion and against the bible saying hey they got the number of legs on a on a on a grasshopper long. how wrong how can you trust anything in oh, this book oh yeah that's it um, <laughs> yeah i read in uh food and culture a reader by uh carol uh, Cunahan and penny van estrick that uh that possibly the, the i mean the biblical distinction here is more about insects that walk versus those that that fly or mm-hmm. at least kind of
2: have that uh, live in that area between uh, fl- true flight and uh, and walking. So in that case, it would be saying something like the saying having four legs or going on all fours, which the Bible passage says in which these bee images indicate it's not really about counting the number of legs. It's more just kind of like this is in the category of things that crawl. Right. That it's a land animal and that.
1: But it, bees fly. Bees fly. So they're OK. So it's more like saying don't eat the the insect land animals. But um then another thing that comes to mind here is just um the law of conservation of detail, mm-hmm. which is the reason that. Everybody on the Simpsons, uh, where only have four digits on uh-huh. each hand and why you do see a number of bees and other insects in cartoons that have the wrong number of limbs. Yeah. Uh, because ultimately when you're recreating these things on a smaller, unreal scale, you are forced to, uh, to use an inaccurate number
2: of limbs or digits. Oh, well, that seems like a very logical explanation to me, especially for the, the illustrations of the bees. Yeah. And certainly worth remembering for
1: future alien civilizations that come to our, our planet and try and figure out the Simpsons. What, is, <laughs> what are they trying to tell us? Wow, yeah. What what is with the fingers? So um it's uh first of all, it's it's interesting to just uh discuss the importance of of uh, honey as a trade good. Yeah. I was really fascinated by this uh because as, as Kritzky points out, Egyptian societies didn't a uh, society didn't really have
2: a currency. I mean, they sort of did, but Mm -hmm. they didn't have a physical currency. They had like a, they had an ideal currency, which they would use to uh, essentially the way it worked is you had a measure of a certain metal like copper, Mm -hmm. and then you would have certain quantities of that copper, but you wouldn't actually hold the copper in your hand. So if you were owed, for example, five debons of copper, you would be paid five debons of copper worth of grain or right. something like that.
1: Yeah. And there would be there would also be cases where if you were uh, supposed to pay or be paid in grain and they did not have the grain, you might pay in honey. Right. So honey in a, in a sense was a currency. Yeah. Uh, but, but, and it was valuable from yes. what I understand. Yeah. And like that it, value would go up and down, but it was, it was a valuable commodity.
2: It wasn't something that everybody beat and all the time. It was sort of a, a luxury food item.
1: Yeah. A luxury food item as well as we'll discuss uh, an item that is, uh, that is utilized in medicine and magic. So you're um, saying
2: honey was money.
1: Yeah. Honey was money. And since honey was money, honey was of course also an industry, a state run industry, um, they were the ancient Egyptians were a civil organization, and that's how they that's how they built their wonders. That's how they made their honey. They had a system of beekeepers, overseers, overseers to to look over those overseers. They're just a whole um, you know system uh to regulate the production of honey and then ultimately the trade of honey yeah. with other uh, with other uh, cultures
2: but of course the honey also had a great spiritual significance within Egyptian religion and their their uh their priesthood and their mythology right yeah i mean we we already talked about the tears of ray the bee is the tear of ray you know, the sun god cries and his his tears become a gift to us that gives us this sweet sweet food
1: yeah it is uh it is the the product of a of a holy animal uh to the ancient egyptians and certainly too i mean it's golden it glistens when the sunlight hits it it appears to glow uh you can you can easily imagine just carrying a little of your your symbolic uh, magical understanding of the world into your your contemplation of honey it just it's this
2: this potent, perfect thing. Now, of course, in the ancient world, we often see an association between healing and religious ritual. The, the, it's very likely in, in an ancient culture that you might find the the medicines and the, the doctors sort of overlapping with the priesthood and the sacred rites. The, there wasn't always so much of a distinction between science-based medicine and magic-based medicine. And you certainly see that come through with honey because honey actually does have known medical uses that that are truly effective, uh, it was also used as a, you know, a sort of functional medicine, but also as a magical medicine in ancient Egypt.
1: That's right. Yeah. I mean, we're in a uh, we're in a situation where uh, the, the best minds are using the materials at hand to try and treat injuries and disease. Some of it is working. Some of it is sort of working. Some of it's not working, but maybe it seems to work. And some of it just feels right within the, uh, uh, you know, the, the framework of uh, their worldview. So it, it's interesting that um, Egyptian physicians who were at the time were considered some of the best in the world. Like this was, again, in ancient Egypt, you found skin grafts taking place. Yeah. Um, so an, an Egyptian physician would treat a wound, but they would also give you a wax amulet to burn. Uh, and and this is key because 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 uh, you, you take the wax. All right. You, you make a candle from the wax or just this amulet. And when it burns, it burns up brightly and it burns up completely. So symbolically and by extension, magically, it consumes the illness. Yeah. Burning
2: completely. means there's no ash. left. Right. No ash at all. I mean, so there's this almost magical quality to that. You'd expect ash from all of the other burning you do in your normal life. I mean... Mm -hmm. We all burn a lot of things, but there's always some evidence left behind. If you can burn this wax figurine up completely, something does seem very otherworldly about that.
1: Yeah, and you burn it, you burn this thing that is made from this substance that comes from the creature that in turn came from the God of the sun.
2: Now, speaking of the sacred or religious aspects, I I couldn't, pardon me this indulgence, but I, I could not help but notice that sort of understanding the science behind the emergence of beekeeping is to see the biological evolution of a trinity between three organisms. So you've got your autotrophs, your pollinators, and your domesticators. The, mm-hmm. the autotrophs are the plants. You know, these are the creators of the energy in this chain, and they create nectar from sunlight. So they turn the the sunlight photo energy into sugar. Then the pollinators, the bees, in a way, are sort of the redeemers. They convert this uh, this scant nectar that the plants produce. Uh, through a process of sacred barfing into <laughs> very highly concentrated and and prized valuable honey and then of course the domesticators which are the human beekeepers are uh, I, I would think of them sort of as like the order the logos that holds this whole system in place and in biological terms it's a three-way symbiosis it's three ways that organisms are all interacting and all benefiting from the system And in terms of the religious context, you've got this trinity. And I was just trying to think of other cases in the natural world where we see uh, domestication taking this form of a three way symbiosis. I mean, obviously, uh, like grass converts sunlight into chemical energy and then our cattle eat that. Uh, but I don't know if you'd say that's symbiotic for the grass. Like, does the grass benefit from being eaten by cattle in the same way that the plants benefit from being pollinated by the bees?
1: Yeah, I was, I was trying to, to think of any other examples earlier. And, you know, I think you can sort of stretch it and apply it to, to, to other organisms, but it, it's, it's hard to think of a, an example where it applies so perfectly
2: and so, you know, just, just so, you know, symbolically. Uh huh. Uh, but anyway, l- let's get back to beeswax and some, uh, some ancient apicultural voodoo. Okay, yeah.
1: So, um, yeah, so they're using beeswax for a number of things, not just magical. They're using it as an, ad- an adhesive. They're using it uh, as an embalming agent, a light source in the form of candles, uh, an artistic medium. Um, but, it, but magic is where it really shines. So it's, it's uh, malleable. It uh, doesn't break down in water. It doesn't discolor unless you put it out in the sun and that actually makes Perfect. It makes it work perfectly within their magical thinking, right? Because the the the, the rays of Ray will actually change the color of the sacred uh, sculpture, uh, and it also doesn't lose its shape after being molded into its desired form. So you have wax figures uh, that last for centuries uh, when they are actually. Um, stored away. Uh, one of the problems here is that since so many of these wax figures from, uh, from, uh, the Egyptians, they were made to burn. So a lot of them were burned. Right. Uh, so, you know, you, you find some in tombs here and there, but, uh, but you know, but but certainly the vast majority of, of the the amulets and statuettes that were created were consumed by fire.
2: It's it's the same reason that uh, future generations of archaeologists aren't going to find all that many intact pinatas to study yeah, from our culture. Exactly. So there are a few
1: different um, different accounts that uh, that, that Kritzky uh, rolls through that uh, that that help. Uh, uh help us understand the the use of these wax uh, uh magical icons so the salt 825 papyrus that's the one uh that uh, that original quote was from about the tears of ray okay it describes how wax quote could be used to ensure the destruction of Seth the god of confusion disorder and violence and the murderer of Osiris uh unquote so simply You'd make a beeswax likeness of your enemy, and then you burn them to, quote, kill the name of Seth. That is too cool. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's I said, I want to do that doll. right now.
2: <laughs> yeah. The, this principle is just too good. And and it doesn't just work for uh, destruction. It can work multiple ways. Uh, it, it, you, you might say the the wax magic. go It's a two way street. Yeah. Uh, cause there's one great story in the Tears of Ray also that, that recounts the, uh, a 12th dynasty myth of a priest named, uh, Webowner, not Webinar, but Webowner. Yeah, I kept, I kept reading it in my head as Webinar. <laughs> too, uh, a, who, and uh, like, like Webinars, this guy has some nefarious intentions. He, <laughs> he makes a wax crocodile and then he throws it into a pond where his wife's lover is having a nice bath. And then the wax crocodile comes to life, eats the person, and then vanishes. And then the priest comes back and can summon the crocodile from the pond and turn it back into wax. Yeah. And he does so in the
1: presence of the pharaoh. And then the pharaoh observes this and says, and uh, uh, in, in after after observing this, magic says, oh, well, you're right. There's the lover right there. Um Oh
2: wait, yeah, so he turns I sentence it, him to death. Sorry, we should have said he turns it back into wax and that what it it vomits up the lover. Right.
1: Yeah, and and then the pharaoh says, "Well, there's the lover. Your story checks out." I sentence him to death. And so then uh, uh the, the 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 priest here turns the uh, the wax crocodile back into a real crocodile. It eats the lover and this time uh vanishes for good into the water. So that, that is a great myth. That is awesome. Yeah, I love it. I mean, you have, you have statues becoming, uh, real creatures and then turning back into statues. And it's, uh, it's, it's a fun one. In addition to these stories though, uh, again, we do find wax amulets, uh, including onks, offering tables, winged sun discs, uh, tiets which are uh, Isis symbols, and uh, and collars, also animals such as one of a hippo, which it said can uh, can be destroyed in order to slaughter an actual hippo. What? Yeah, you can burn the wax
2: hippo to kill the real hippo.
1: Yeah, so more of this uh, the symbolic magic of burning the. Uh, the likeness in order to harm or destroy the actual thing.
2: You wonder how ideas like that persisted if they if they have a guarantee. I feel like some some ambiguity had to be built into it because otherwise people would kind of observe that they were burning wax hippos and not killing their hippo every time.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I'm thinking it had to you you would probably something you would do in addition to taking direct physical action against the hippo. Yeah. Uh, Oh, I can see
2: that. Yeah. Like, it increases your chances of defeating the hippo with a spear.
1: Yeah, uh, there's a, cause there's also a 13th, uh, dynasty myth that alleges that the pharaoh, uh, Nactonebo, uh, used rituals entailing little wax ships to secure victories against the Persians. Oh. And, uh, okay. there's not a lot of additional data there, but, I can either imagine it a as a uh, as a ritual that's carried out in addition to military action yes. uh, as a way to sort of bless your military action. Or I couldn't in the back of my head, mind, I couldn't help but think, well, maybe this guy just had like wax models of his units and it was like war gaming it out uh, on the table before him. And perhaps maybe an onlooker thought, hey, he's practicing magic here. Clearly, he's using little likenesses of the ships
2: in order to uh, magically secure victory. Well, there, there is a lot of ambiguity, as we've been saying, between functional uses and magical uses. And this definitely comes through, as, as we mentioned earlier, in medicine, mm-hmm. uh, because, like we said, they do use honey for a lot of medical practices, honey and beeswax both. Yeah, apparently
1: there are, there are over 500 documented uh, uh, prescriptions that use honey, and um, a lot of times it's just about making the thing that you're eating more palatable. You know, yeah, it's uh, that, a spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down.
2: That's not to be discounted. I mean, that yeah. is legitimate medical technology if it eases the uh, if it eases the application of a medicine.
1: Yeah, and then other times it is uh, you know an active ingredient in the medication.
2: Yeah, there is one thing I had to relate from the book that talks about how the the Ebers Papyrus, you know, mm-hmm. this famous papyrus from ancient Egypt, describes several ways of treating constipation, which it calls... Calls, quote, to open the belly, Okay. which I, I don't know. When I pictured that, I see uh, what it is described in Jurassic Park that the velociraptor does with its claw, you know, split spills your intestines out everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, this, this is to cure constipation. So one of the cures it offers for constipation is this. You get some milk, you get some honey and you get notched sycamore figs. Then you boil that mixture down and then you run it through a strainer and then you drink this for four days. Okay. And apparently it worked pretty well at curing constipation, but it worked a little too well because some patients had their constipation so decisively cured that they ended up with a prolapsed anus. Oh. Uh, and so what do you do to help this poor patient that now has a prolapsed anus? Well, you mix up a balm of salt, oil, and honey, and then you apply directly to the anus. Okay. For another four days. So again, the use of honey. Uh, the honey makes the anus go out. The honey makes the anus come back in. Okay. Or maybe it doesn't make it come back in, but maybe just eases some of the discomfort you feel.
1: <laughs> and it certainly—it's uh, we even modern uh, studies have documented uh, the use of of honey uh, as a way to uh, to treat cuts and burns to alleviate the symptoms uh, and the
2: pain uh, therein. Yeah, it has legitimate medical potential.
1: Yeah. As um, as Kritzky points out in his book, it, it has uh, osmotic uh, potential. So it's, you know, it's this this viscous um substance. Mm-hmm. There's not a, a lot of liquid in there so it can actually suck the fluid out of bacteria mm. and in doing so lessen bacterial
2: infections. Yeah. I mean honey has natural antimicrobial properties. Yeah. Um, I think part of this is just due to its pH, right? It has mm-hmm. low pH meaning it's acidic. But it also has other chemical properties.
1: That's right. Um, Anti microbial activity in most honeys is due to the uh, enzymatic production of hydrogen peroxide.
2: Oh, okay. So the fizzy stuff.
1: Yeah. And uh, I mean, additionally, too, you're you're putting honey on a wound. It it can it can maintain it maintains a moist wound condition. That high viscosity helps to provide a protective barrier to prevent infection. If your wound is caked in honey. nothing's necessarily going to get through that uh that honey layer on top as delicious as it may seem and uh you know in many reports um there are many reports out there of, of, of honey being used very effectively as a dressing for wounds, burns, skin ulcers, and inflammations, uh, with the uh, the antibacterial properties of honey speeding up the growth of new tissue to heal the wound. Studies have actually found that that honey uh, can reduce healing times in uh, patients suffering
2: mild to moderate burn wounds. That's cool. Yeah. But, of course, getting back to the ancient world, the Ebers papyrus also has some other recommendations oh, for yeah. us. It does prescribe honey for treating urinary problems. If you pee too much or if it hurts when you do, mixtures containing honey were recommended. I don't know to what extent that actually would have been effective Mm -hmm. or if it was if the honey was what was responsible for it. Uh, But the honey also was used in a mixture of some genuinely (laughs) gross-sounding prophylactic devices for contraception. Other ingredients were things like crocodile feces and sour milk. And essentially, it's a female condom made out of this the grossest combination of substances you can find, but it included honey. Um, and uh, and I know Kritsky points out that it's possible. Some studies have suggested that the sour milk could have actually had uh, spermicidal huh. properties to it. So this may have been partially effective. But uh, this is not a recommendation that you try any of these mixtures at home.
1: Yeah, don't do not do not try this at home. Um, you know, and of course, in talking about all of this too, the placebo effect has to be huge too, because uh, we've discussed how that this sort of—I uh, um, think you've brought it up—that uh, the something happened scenario, right? You felt something, right? Uh, and, and in this case, it could just be the, the sweet sensation of of tasting honey.
2: Yeah, I've actually mentioned before this is something that comes up a lot on another podcast I listen to sometimes called uh, oh, the Sawbones. Saw, Sawbones. Yeah, mm-hmm. where they talk about w- weird uh, applications of medicine throughout history. In fact, my wife Rachel told me that they have an episode on honey. I haven't had a chance to listen oh, to cool. it, but we should we should check that out. Yeah, indeed.
1: Um yeah, I'd love to hear it cuz I I I know of of a few other uses of honey uh in uh in medicine that are kind of strange, but I would love to hear a, a complete overall uh, examination of uh, different cultures and their use of honey.
2: Yeah. And, and th- those guys are always pretty funny, so that should be a good one. Oh, cool.
1: All right. So we have talked about the healing power of honey, the magical use of honey, the, Uh, beekeeping techniques that the ancient Egyptians seemed to utilize to get the honey and the wax from the bees. And uh, before that, we talked about the way the bees
2: produce honey uh, to begin with and why they evolved into this curious state. I really am fascinated by the emergence of apiculture as as just one incarnation of agriculture and the domestication of animals as a technology in human history. Because I think this is often overlooked when thinking about what technology is. I I think of technology these days, and I just think of electronics. Yeah, uh, and I always r- have to remember to broaden my mind. And and if I try to broaden my mind, I go from electronics to other mechanical, uh, inanimate objects that we use as tools to accomplish goals in, in smart ways. But it really shouldn't even just be inanimate objects, because really, the control of other living organisms to accomplish goals should be thought of as a technology. And I think this is one of the most complex and fascinating ones that we have, that we've created a relationship with a symbiotic relationship in nature that already exists between flowers and bees and made it work to our advantage. There's something very beautiful and very weird about that. If you can just step back for a moment and look at this as an alien would – Uh, that we keep insects in containers that fertilize the plants that grow all over the earth and make sweet food and medicine for us.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. And it's... uh... And, and indeed, it is a true technology, and it 's one that, like, like the pyramids, has stood the test of time, uh, as as Zakritsky points out you can you can find traditional Egyptian beekeepers to this day that are using uh, some of the same techniques that that, uh, that would have been used in ancient times
2: yeah, and I think this is just one more example of something that I think is sort of a, a recent theme on this show, something we like to talk about that um, that that ancient cultures or uh cultures that are pre-modern technology before electronics before uh you know steam powered industry or anything like that were not stupid i think it's easy for people to think oh they, they didn't have any of the technology we have they must have been dumb mm-hmm. they weren't at all they were amazingly clever i think in many ways probably more clever than us because they didn't have as much easy uh they, did, they didn't have an easy foothold like we did to make new advances so they were working with what they had, and and when you see the innovations they came up with, it's astounding. Indeed.
1: So hey, let's uh, go ahead and get uh, Mr. Kritzky on the phone here, and uh, we will uh, ask him just a few follow up questions about his book, The Tears of Ray. All right, uh, Professor Kritsky, thank you for joining us here uh, on the podcast to discuss uh, your excellent book, The Tears of Ray, Beekeeping in Ancient Egypt.
2: Yeah, I think Robert and I both really enjoyed this book, so thank you for writing it in addition to thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's uh, it's great to be here. So just to kick things off, uh, how did you first become interested in ancient
0: Egyptian beekeeping? Oh, <laughs> I've been a frustrated historian for many, many years, uh, and uh, my, my interest in Egyptology and, and insect salt sort of happened about the same time in my uh, early teen years living in uh, Miami, Florida. And uh, I remember walking home uh, and seeing a, a wild nest of uh, honeycomb that had fallen on the ground, and I collected out all the uh, The bees and put them in. I was a nerd. I put them in test tubes and took them up into my room and watched them develop. And ended up taking them to the school and they had them on display for several days. And that got my interest in in honeybees. My interest in Egyptology happened a few weeks later. I was um, going to a parochial institution that uh, was uh, very creationist in its orientation, and uh, they started talking about Noah's flood and Usher's chronology and said that uh, uh, the flood occurred in twenty three forty eight B C. And that seemed kind of interesting to me because it, I'd seen dates that pertain to Egyptology seemed older. So I looked, went and started reading books on, on ancient Egypt and found that the pyramids were built 500 years before the, the flood. <laughs> and it 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 was a real uh, a real enlightening experience. I like, like, am I the only one that's seeing this? You know, <laughs> must have built them very sturdy. Oh, the, you know, that's right. The, you know, the flood that created the, that that carved out the Grand Canyon didn't destroy the pyramids. Come on. <laughs> so anyway, that uh, that that really got me going. And uh, but I also got fascinated with Egyptology at that time. And uh, even even while I was working on my PhD in entomology, I remember uh, that was when the King Tut exhibit was was touring for the first time in, in the late seventies and going to uh, the Egyptology section at the University of Illinois Library and just sitting on the floor and pulling off every volume, one after the other, looking for any kind of insect association and insect reference. And that's how it started, uh, uh, wanting to uh, sort of uh, annoy my high school teachers (laughs) (laughs) and then uh, getting caught up in the the King Tut craze. That was when Steve Martin did that wonderful song on Saturday Night Live, so it was uh, a way to get caught up in that as well. So, Dr. Kriske, what would you say
2: about how the ancient Egyptian uh, treatment of beekeeping, the, the apiculture technology, uh, what does that reveal about the ancient Egyptian culture? What what does their technology say about who these people were and what they believed?
0: Well, the the aspect, of course, the title of the book is The Tears of Ray. And there is a papyrus from 300 uh, BCE, which uh, gives the whole story about what the Egyptians thought uh, Uh, bees are about and that that, the the statement that's in this papyrus uh, that wrote uh, that the god Ray wept and the tears from his eyes fell on the ground and turned into a bee and the bee made his honeycomb and busied himself with the flowers of every plant and so wax was made and also honey out of the tears of Ray and so for the Egyptians honey was a gift of the sun god and that made it very very important to them. Not only was it an important commodity as a sweetener, it was used in medicine, it was used in uh, in uh, uh, the wax was very important in, as a uh, in medicine as well along with honey, but also as a as a uh, a magical substance. Uh, all of this came from these these insects that were essentially the manifestation of the god's tears and so that that uh, made honey quite valuable from a theological perspective but also from a, a biological perspective as well. And they're, even in their their temples, uh, the Sun Temple, for example, from the Fifth Dynasty of uh, Nefertari, there's this wonderful relief that shows beekeeping. And so here's something that you was know, I don't I've, I've been to a lot of cathedrals and temples and churches around the world, and I've not seen displays about beekeeping in there. <laughs> so that puts it in a whole different uh, perspective.
1: Now uh, in uh in your research. Am I correct in, in, in reading that you at one point became locked inside of a tomb?
0: Yes, that happened. Uh, that was, um, I was a, a Fulbright scholar to Egypt uh, in the early 80s and uh, was uh, I was teaching in Min- at Minya University about 150 miles south of Cairo and as part of my research, I was I was just visiting archaeological sites to find any kind of insect carving and references to insects and what have you. visited 94 archaeological sites and uh, I was uh, getting so well-known in the area that I was even asked by uh, members of the Fulbright Commission if I would meet guests and take them on tours. And, and one instance was uh, the American ambassador to Egypt. He, uh, he and his wife and their son came down to Minya for a tour of the antiquities. And, of course, uh, His Excellency was uh, received a government escort everywhere he was going, and, and the ambassador's son and I went off on our own. And while we were down in an underground necropolis, Uh, A sandstorm blew up, (laughs) and uh, they grabbed the ambassador and his wife and escorted them to the rest house, and uh, uh, we weren't there. And I was told later that uh, he looked around and said, where's my son? And this uh, military official uh, responded, he is safe, Your Excellency. He is locked in the tomb. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. And so... The, of course the, we we had two guards with us. we weren't in any real danger, and it wasn't like it was like airtight. We were going to suffocate because you could actually see through cracks in the door. so uh, his son and I started exploring on our own while we were waiting. We were there about forty five minutes and went down one uh shaft and found a a small uh a coffin that would have held a mummified ibis bird. Uh, we found a crocodile skull there was there was mummy linen everywhere because this was such a it was an important underground animal necropolis. So it was quite an exciting time. It's uh, one of those few things that uh, I never expected to do, and it's something that doesn't happen to a lot of people. You know, the uh, the mummified animals you mentioned, that
2: relates back to something I know you mentioned in the book, but I didn't have a time to look up on the side. Was You mentioned the Crocodilopolis, which sounded fascinating to me. What's the deal with that?
0: Crocodilopolis, uh, that was a, a, a city that was uh, prominent during uh, the Ptolemaic period, later in, in ancient uh, uh uh egypt uh and uh uh, they worshipped the the crocodile god was the god sobek and so crocodileopolis was uh, associated with that deity and the reference in the book talked about feeding crocodiles uh a food that was also laced with uh, with honey oh
2: yeah so one of the things that you point out in the book and i noticed uh even before you pointed it out in several of the different artworks and carvings is the variable number of legs in the depictions of bees. Like uh, sometimes you would see with apparently three legs, which sort of makes sense because it seems like maybe if you're looking from one side, each leg could represent a pair. But then other times you'd see what looked to me like four legs or maybe five legs, depending on how you interpreted uh, one little uh, strand coming out the back of the bee. And this, this rang a bell in my mind, and I remembered that there is a passage in the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus 11, that talks about, winged insects with four legs and I, works, I just yes. thought that was a kind of strange coincidence. Now there are obviously a lot of ways you might explain uh, a glyph of a bee or an illustration of a bee in the ancient world having a different number of legs, but do you think this was a widespread belief in the ancient Near East that there were insects with four legs or is this just conservation of detail?
0: Well, in, in, in the case of the Egyptian honeybee uh, the most uh, uh, exact carvings show the bee having uh, four legs oriented forward, and then the hind leg is actually superimposed on the abdomen. And in some instances, uh, that wasn't drawn in or was very lightly carved in, so it doesn't stand out because it's actually always superimposed on the abdomen itself. And... Uh, uh, so, but, uh, on almost all cases, you're going to find evidence that they probably had all six legs, but they might not have carved the uh, hind leg as detailed enough because of the abdominal structure. Uh, carving that that honeybee hieroglyph uh, uh, was quite variable. Uh, I have a chapter in the book about about uh, how they would go about doing this, and uh, it's all for me. It was like doing handwriting analysis if you're going to do forensic handwriting analysis for forgery or what have you, and uh, found that there were certain. Certain patterns that were consistent uh, with certain certain bees in certain places of temples, for example. But uh, uh, in in general, unless if, if it's a very careful carving, it always has uh, evidence of uh, the four legs forward and then the hind legs superposed on it. But you wouldn't see the other leg on the other side of the abdomen in that case. Uh, but uh, so I think you're looking at mostly. Uh, uh, not not necessarily being careful for the eye of detail, but uh, in some cases these uh, uh, these uh, details might have uh, slowly uh, uh, give, given away during time through time.
2: Interesting.
1: So so a, a question. This this is something that that maybe didn't come up as much in the book, but it kind of relates to some previous episodes that we've uh, we've done with the podcast that deal with uh, with with Egyptology and animals. Did the ancient Egyptians ever use
0: bees as a, as a weapon?
1: In, in any sense
0: I didn't didn't run across any example of honeybees being used as a weapon like you'd see for example some of the uh, uh, medieval uh, uh, illuminated manuscripts and some of the uh, references talk about uh, uh, skep straw beehives being thrown over castle walls for example to break up a siege and things like that so uh, I did not find any evidence of, of bees being used as a weapon per se uh, the uh, difference was in in the Type of hives Egyptians were using. They were clay tubes. They they would not stand to a lot of uh, trauma, if you will. Uh, they they were had fewer bees in each one than than we would have in our typical modern box hive. Probably five seven thousand bees as opposed to you know thirty five to forty five fifty thousand bees in a st- in a tall multi store multi boxed uh, Langstroth hive.
2: Cool. Uh, and so I've got a couple of other ideas I want to see what you think about about the uh, the relationship between humans and bees and uh, and bee evolution. So one of the first things I, I started thinking about in this book is that uh, beekeeping seems interesting to me and that it might be unique. and I wonder if you can think of any other examples in that it seems like a truly three-way symbiotic relationship between the plants that are pollinated, the bees uh, that produce the honey, and then the the human beekeepers. And I I was trying to think of another relationship that's equally symbiotic three ways, and I I couldn't quite, but I wondered if you had any insight on that.
0: Uh, Well, uh, with regard to the the bees, uh, I think uh, humans were probably interacting with honeybees long before we became homo sapiens. Uh, We know now that, uh, for example, chimpanzees will... Will take sticks and fashion them in different thicknesses. For example, to tear into a uh, uh, a wild uh, honeybee nest, and they'll even carry these, these sticks around with them. So they, uh, you know, if if the chimpanzees were doing that, it's quite likely that uh, uh, the hominins, uh, our ancestors, are probably doing this as well, uh, going back several million years. So this association with bees go- is very ancient in, uh, in our species and probably pre- and definitely predates uh, modern modern humans. Uh, so in that case since honeybees uh, they're not truly beekeeping, they're robbing right but there is a relationship that they're actually going to be taking advantage of a, of the, 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 the golden sweet windfall of a, of a, a bee's nest. Uh, and that was probably how our, our beekeeping uh, originated. There are symbiotic relationships that 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 might involve up to three organisms, but don't necessarily involve humans. I'm, I'm trying to think. So I'm thinking of things like the uh, fig wasps, Oh, yes. example, oh yes. some of the uh, and things like that that you you'd see a very specialized uh, relationship between the, uh, the the figs, humans, and uh, and uh, the wasps. And in those cases, uh, now in, in the case of Egypt, they they didn't have the fig wasps, so they were actually scarifying the fruit to make it ripen, but. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, that would be a three-way uh, example as well.
1: Excellent. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about the fig wasp, but that, that's, a, that's a tremendous example. That,
0: that is a great question. I like that. That's, that's, that's coming from the side that I hadn't even thought about before. I, my, my mind is really clicking on that one. <laughs> well, uh, well, that leads into the next question I wanted
2: to ask, which is uh, about the evolutionary relationship we see with other domesticated animals that uh, that humans use for their agricultural uh, agriculture for companionship so we've got dogs we've got cattle we've got all kinds of you know draft animals farm animals that in many ways have very much diverged evolutionarily from their wild ancestors and i wonder if we see anything like that with domesticated bees or if we ever will in the future Um, is it because we've had a domestication relationship with bees for less time if we don't see that
0: I, I, I think there's no question that we've had an impact on on honeybee uh, evolution. Case in point, uh, in Europe during the uh, the last uh, 1,500 years, when we kept bees uh, in straw and wicker skep hives, the basket hives, it was very common uh, in the early earlier centuries when you harvested the honey. The beekeeper would walk around, pick up the lift the skep, and if it was really heavy, that'd be the one that they would harvest. And the, how they would harvest it, they would dig a pit in the ground, fill it with uh, sulfur and brimstone what have you, and, and start a fire and literally knock all the bees into the fire. Whoa! Now, they're, now what they're doing is taking their best-producing bees and killing them. Hmm. Uh, Darwin has something to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what we're seeing is this, we have, for centuries, slowly been killing large numbers of, of, of very good-producing colonies. And then we tried to some of the bees. Eventually, we got to the point where they could drive the bees out of these wicker basket hives. They would uh, they would uh, take the, the the skep hive, put it in a, in a the, the full skep, put it upside down in a in a pail, and then have an empty skep of, uh, next to it. And using uh, pieces of board, nail the, sort of hold that empty skep in place. and Then they would bang the daylight out of the side of that pail, and the bees <laughs> would walk out of the full skep up into the empty. Empty skep and the second, they could drive the bees from one hive to the next.
1: Huh, that is so that's
0: that we started seeing that in in good numbers in the late uh, 1800s, and quite common during the uh, uh, the 19th century. Uh, but uh, we, for many many years, uh, uh, had been you know going out and and selectively killing good producing bees. And uh, a colleague of mine, uh, uh, Steve Shepard. Up at uh, Washington State University, he uh, has been looking at uh, the diversity of honeybees, and has found that uh, all the bees in the United States are, uh, all of our queens are related to a small number of, of queens. It's fewer than a thousand. So we we have dramatically uh, reduced the uh, the genetic diversity of bees over over the years as beekeepers. And that may be contributing to some of the problems that we uh, we are having. And there's a concerted effort now. Uh, Steve is doing this and others to go out all over the world and try to uh, uh, improve the genetic diversity by getting, uh, 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 collecting drones and getting semen uh, samples to bring back for, for crosses.
2: Hmm. Well, that's really fascinating. So th- that makes me wonder, do we already have or do you ever think we will have uh, domesticated bees that are as different from the, the wild original honeybee as, say, a chihuahua is from the gray wolf?
0: Well, we have several var- we have several strains or, or varieties now. There's the and they're all Apis prolifera, but they're uh, they're subspecies. Uh, they all, uh, from what we can tell, they all evolved on their own. And you know, for example, the Italian strain came from the the Alps area, North Italy, and what have you. Uh, we are there. Are, it has been attempts. Uh, Brother Adam was a, a a beekeeper who was trying to. Uh, Selectively breed bees that would mature a little faster to help reduce its its parasite load, for example. Uh, so there are efforts to do things like that. Uh, it, it, I've not seen any real, you know, overall success that would say that it's that it's, uh, that it's come to fruition yet. But we, that it, it is quite conceivable that we could modify bees through uh, selective breeding uh, uh, to be something different. Hmm
2: interesting well Robert, did you have
1: something else? No I believe that that's that's a great place to, to leave off I just want uh, I want to thank uh, thank you again uh, Professor Kritsky for taking the time to chat with us and uh, encourage all of our listeners if you' if you're whether you're interested in history or uh, or insects um, if, if it's the, the ancient Egyptian angle or the uh, the, the beekeeping angle that, that brings you in like this is just a tremendous and accessible read
0: on both topics. My, uh, if I can, uh, uh, the shameless plug, I will say my my previous book with Oxford uh, was the Quest for the Perfect Hive, which is the history of the modern beehive. Oh, excellent! And how we how we got from these tube hives from the Egyptians up to the uh, through basket hives into the those white boxes that we see uh, out in fields. Now, can you tell us what will the hives of the future look like? <laughs> oh, wow! That's one of the themes behind my uh, the the book, uh, the Quest for the Perfect Hive is. One of the things that's happened is we stopped we've stopped inventing. Uh, it's beginning to come back a little bit, but uh, uh, when the, uh, uh, during the late nineteenth century and into the 20th century, beekeepers were, were spending a lot of money but to buy equipment that was interchangeable and they were buying extractors and uh, uh, it was rather it's rather expensive to actually retool an entire bee operation honeybee operation. And so uh, uh, the, if you went and found a, a beekeeping supply catalog from the 1920s, it would look just like our catalogs today in some cases, wow. except they wouldn't have styrofoam hives. <laughs> so here we have these—we have pre-depression era bees uh, uh, living in hives that were invented back in the 1920s, and we, we've got—we have their honeybee genome. And so, you know, my question always is: Have we found the perfect hive? Huh. And since the books come out, we're now seeing a lot of people invest. Uh, Uh, Exploring new hives, Uh, uh, there's a couple that are really quite intriguing. The omelet hive out of England, which is a a wonderful hive for. It's it's expensive, but it's a wonderful hive for uh, the backyard beekeeper. Uh, We, of course, you might have recently heard about the flow hive. That's this hive that uh, uh, you can automatically extract the honey from the hive through hoses, (laughs) (laughs) and that's that's something that's new. I believe there's a Kickstarter campaign to help fund uh, uh, fund that. Uh, there, there's a lot of interest in, in uh, trying to improve uh, uh, beekeeping operations uh, to encourage more people to keep bees, even if they don't want to collect the honey, but uh, just keep the pollinators around.
2: Oh man, the beehive with the hoses—that sounds like an HR Geeger kind of concept.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you should take a look at it. They, they they are actually able to split the the honeycomb, and then the, they, they, the, the honey then flows out through. Through uh, uh, hoses into containers, so they don't have to take the high the frames out for extracting.
2: Wow, well, that's fascinating. Well, uh, I guess we should wrap it up, unless there's anything else you feel like you would like to say. But, uh, but I really appreciate you talking to us. I thoroughly enjoyed
0: it. Thank you for having me.
1: All right, so there you have it. That book, again, is The Tears of Ray, Beekeeping in Ancient Egypt by Gene Kritsky. And that is Ray spelled R-E. Uh, you can find that. It's available uh, in both physical and digital copies right now. And we'll include a link to it on the landing page for this uh,
2: for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. And if you want to get in touch with us about this episode or any recent episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can always email us at blowthemindathowstuffworks.com.